You're listening to the Flip My Funnel podcast, a daily podcast dedicated to helping B2B marketing, sales, and customer success professionals become masters of their craft. It's Wednesday, and in these episodes, Sangram and myself, James Carberry, focus on personal development. We'll share books and other resources that are helping us get a little bit better every single day. And remember, like Sangram always says, without a community, you are simply a commodity. Here we go. Happy to see you guys here today. I'm happy to do this presentation with you guys, but please feel free to uh, filter in at any time, either through the chat or come off mic. Want this to be super actionable for all of you. But yeah, I would love to kick us off here and kind of just ask everybody. So feel free to come off mute or just type in. One of the things that I find myself asking when I'm interviewing at companies or internally at my own company, I'll ask different departments and leaders, how do they define ABM? And I'm sure you're not surprised that a lot of people come up with many different definitions. So would love to know either how you define ABM, how people on your team define ABM, and just kind of throw that out as our little starter here. Don't be shy. There are probably no wrong answers. Okay. Well, I am shy, but <laughs> I would say my definition would be, I mean, it's one of those like self-explanatory things. Like the definition is also the name account-based marketing. It is marketing that is account-based. Yeah. And then there's like a longer explanation, which is like identifying your ICP and going after named accounts and then like segmenting things. So there's like the quick version is it is marketing that is account-based. Love it. Yes. And Leela also said, we define it as a target list of accounts that we are trying to engage. Pablo said spear phishing with marketing. Kira, when you market to the team versus one person. Dana also said something similar to Pablo, phishing with a spear versus net, knowing who you're going after marketing and sales working together to move prospects along the buyer's journey. Dana, I'm going to kind of explode that a little bit. I love that. And then our, our, we'll bring in Christina too. Using account data to personalize marketing, sales, and customer success outreach. Yes. Paul, strategy to target, engage, activate, and measure accounts. The team framework by our lovely Sangram. Love it. Yeah. So, so much of this is... This is a coordinated effort internally and then externally too with your customers or your future customers. Everybody here said right things. What I would want to caution you guys all with is please do not let the terminology ABM get in the way of you just simply doing great marketing. It's a terminology that is used to typically sell product or software as are many things in marketing. So please do not be intimidated by it. You guys all have right answers. So this is a really great way to kind of just kickstart us off here. A strategic approach, this is from Travis, a strategic approach that coordinates personalized marketing and sales efforts to open doors and deepen engagements. Love it. Love it. All right. Let's see here. Okay. So I've been tasked um, in different positions to really build ABM from the ground up. Per the title of the presentation, really being digital centric or digital first has really helped pave the way for how I've been able to communicate success of ABM at different companies. So on this slide, I'm just highlighting on a couple of do's and don'ts. So really like my main takeaways, if you take anything else from the presentation, these would be my main nuggets of truth. Aligning on target accounts, I think is often viewed as just something we do internally, but it's certainly something we do externally as well. So I caution you to not just rely on CRM 
or anecdotal data from different departments on account selection, but also taking the time to collaborate with partner channels. So one of the biggest successes I actually had with narrowing our focus of target accounts, improving some initial success early, was by taking what we thought the universe of perfect ICP was and actually collaborating with our partner channels, Microsoft in particular. We were able to get a lot more data from them to understand, okay, for our partners, who are they reaching out to? Who are they trying to fill their quota with? Because um, obviously our data in our CRM actually showed when we had partners involved, we were you know, much more likely to close when a deal in a, in a quarter versus two quarters timeframe. So taking that data from them was really helpful. So we got narrowed our list from, I think, like 5,000 down to under 2,000 for a total ICP for what we were going to launch with this program. One of the failures I actually had early on was actually personalizing the content too soon. So I will say, don't wait to launch any of your programs um, or personalize your content too soon, but do identify content that's going to align to your buyers based on different stages that they're in. And then as they start to show intent or interest, then start to personalize the content. Oftentimes too, it can be very minimal. One of um, the wins I've had with personalizing content is taking something like a, a software evaluation ebook and personalizing it, but not just through their lens of, you know, first name or company name, but imagery. So using the way that their company looks, how they represent themselves on their website or their storefront or um, for hospitals, how their hospitals look as an example and embedding that throughout the content, as well as pulling nuggets of information that we started to receive during the sales cycle and highlighting that throughout the content as well. So it shouldn't be too much of a major lift, but it is about taking the time um, to be intentional about when you're personalizing that content for the audience and what that is. Creating BDR-centric programs, this was by far my quickest win to get initial success and buy-in at companies. So <laughs> I'm sure a lot of people can relate on the line to not solely rely on rep engagement for any of your programs. BD I've had the great fortune of having BDRs or SDRs roll up into the marketing function and a, a couple of my jobs, and it really does help to make sure that your campaigns are really hitting the mark. So aligning with them on messaging and creating strong SLAs, both with them, so your marketing team, but also the different revenue functions as well. For, for us, the SLAs really, like they can be seen a little bit rigid um, initially. And so I don't recommend pushing it too soon, maybe starting more with a pilot SLA approach. So getting some buy-in from one or two AEs or one or two BDRs, one or two SCSMs, and then pushing it out across the broader revenue team. But that, those really ensure that everybody's on the same page, they know what's going on, they know what the purpose is, and they know that they're, they have accountability. So a lot of the SLAs really were about if we say that this is a tier one account and we receive this type of engagement through this program, within X amount of time, follow-up of this kind needs to happen. And then um, this is one I think a lot of marketers talk about too, is really the to make sure that you're talking about pre-ABM versus post-ABM metrics. So obviously the revenue metrics are the golden you know, pot at the end of the rainbow. That's what we wanna show for success for any marketing program. But those kind of results, particularly through ABM, can take a lot of time. 
So I do encourage everybody to make sure that some of those softer metrics or those engagement metrics are really showcased and shouted from the rooftop initially. So, hey, this key account was not on our key uh, page before on our website. Now they are due to X, Y, Z, right? Whatever that program was. It's showing initial success and it's kind of, you know, painting the picture for what's to come. So this is a graphic that I've created and there's certainly better ones out there, but it can be quite complicating, complicated to, to share with different teams outside of marketing the purpose of your programs and maybe how they're different from traditional demand gen marketing or other types of marketing. Really what I was trying to convey here largely to my sales team is that we're trying to take this universe of accounts and narrow them in by different data signals and different programs. So you'll see here really that outer sphere is that's where we, we're starting to just target our ICP across the web, right? Our intention here is to gather that first party data. What are they doing on our site? How are they interacting with us? And when they continue to show intent, both with us and across the web through some third party intent platforms, I'm highlighting here Bora as a, as a partner, then we start to push them through some of the more high touch programs. And then ultimately, what are we doing? We're, that's, we're trying to convert them. So we're, we're continuously taking them down more and more high touch programs as they show us that they're ready. Okay, great. I'm gonna, got questions. So we have a question from Andrea. I'm brand new to this and just getting started with a tiny budget and only two employees. What's the first thing newbies should do? Gosh, uh, I feel you. I think there's a lot of marketers on the line too that have been there. I actually did not start any, I did not invest in any technology to begin with. So any kind of program spend that I did was actually through programs, not technology. And this is actually a really perfect segue into my next slide here, um, which is LinkedIn conversation ads. This was the first ABM program that we pushed our prospects through. And what we did was we were really trying to validate our data with this program. So we, we captured everything of what people were doing on our site through our campaigns and our CRM with Salesforce. And we started to take more data um, through third-party channels. And initially, we actually worked with Bombora to do almost like a pilot for us. So what we said to them is, hey, this is new for us. We're not confident that, you know, we feel like we're very niche. So we're not confident that a lot of the keyword signals that you're tracking are going to have actually a meaningful impact on pipeline or really any kind of buyer intent. So I went to them and I said, all right, out of your list of it's like thousands upon thousands of topics, here are my top five. Please show me, based on the data that I'm pulling from my CRM of close one and close loss opportunities within a 12-month period, how many times these popped up. And those keywords for us were super clear, right? Not mergers and acquisitions, which is going to pop up over everything, right? But things like single source of truth, master data management, as an example. That, to me, is showing, okay... This is probably a good signal or indicator that they might be in market and now would be a good time to talk to us. But we use that data that they did give to us for free because it's they are costly programs. So they, these vendors will work with you to give you some free data a lot of the times. And then we married that with this LinkedIn conversation app program. So we took what we knew from our CRM, we took this free sample from Bombora, and we ran these accounts with specific job titles through a very high-touch BDR-centric, I call them, program. So we aligned our SDRs, our BDRs, um, as the face of the, basically what LinkedIn conversation ads are, is there, it's a chatbot. 
And it's a really, really still, I mean, it's gotten much more popular, but it's still pretty underutilized. You can experiment with as little as like $2 per click. And you can have a budget that's, you know, not, not too massive. I think a sweet spot for considering maybe like a quarter run or less is probably at least 5,000 just to make sure you're really getting your entire reach. But it's a really high touch way to engage with your prospects. For us, this is where our audience was living the most. So we made it very conversational in nature. We, we let up front, as you can kind of see, it may be a little bit blurry, but we were very direct with what our offer was and what we were looking to do. Hi, I'm so-and-so from company. I'm like, I would like to buy you dinner. Here's why. Let in then how we're solving problems for companies like theirs. There's a lot, you know, a little bit of different personalization efforts. We made it timely by talking about, about the fact that we know in healthcare, the Cures Act deadline is coming up and they must be compliant. So we made it have to be kind of this, oh, I need to act now. And then we gave them different avenues to interact with us. So what we did is the main call to action, of course, was to book a meeting and do a high level overview demo with them, which they could do right within the LinkedIn conversation ad. But if they didn't want it, we simply took them to other content stream offerings that actually took them to our website outside of LinkedIn. And they would then go to the industry relevant page for them where they can consume our thought leadership that's specifically relevant for this company. I would say that prior to this program, the company I was at saw LinkedIn as like a waste field, like just wasted money, really high spend, no conversions. But because we were able to tie data and we interacted with them timely. And again, we were also very clear with what we, who we are, what we want from them and what they'll get from us. The LinkedIn conversation ads kind of force you to be that way because there's a character limit. So <laughs> if you did go to any other of our content, you would see that we're very wordy, tons of run-on sentences, we go on and on. This was a really great exercise to show too, from a brand perspective of how just being human can actually lead to more conversations and open the door. So this for us got us to around, um, I think $200 or less per meeting. So that's not per lead, right? That's per meeting and that's exactly how I sold it. Forget about getting a lead for 50 bucks and it takes maybe a year plus to get them in the door with you or on the phone with your rep. This is getting them in the door right away. And to me, the $200 valuation is much better than a $50 you know, lead that's not worth much over time. Leila, what is your opinion on the LinkedIn conversation ads now that you have tried it? You would endorse it? Yes, a thousand percent. It's definitely something that needs to be tested. You... The couple of, oh, and there's a really great, Terry, if you can link to it in the comments. There, I did a whole session for Peak around LinkedIn conversation ads, and I go into like the weeds with that. But there is a lot of testing to be done on your copy, what's going to resonate, if you're going to put an offer in. It can be used for all sorts of things like event registration, content downloads, getting people to participate maybe in a um, research report that you're doing. There's so many different avenues that you could go with this. But again, it's, it's an interesting offering that LinkedIn hasn't quite built the reins in around enough yet. So there's some tricks. You can actually end your campaign. And because this is going to your LinkedIn inbox, it doesn't matter if the person actually ends up opening it a year later and your campaign is still not running spend. You can still get interactions and get notified of engagement from that. So it's kind of like an always on thing in a way. Okay. And then Ari, what the size of your audience for the conversation ads. Yeah. 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 Um, there's definitely a size component. Unfortunately, I hate that restriction. It has all to do with just, you know, 
privacy and compliance laws, but there it is a minimum of a thousand accounts. So this would have to be something that you're super mindful about to, you know, what you're doing and making sure you have the right size fit for it. Um, kind of more around the size and audience too. LinkedIn doesn't really promote this, but you need to be as specific as possible. There's so many people that are at multiple jobs, like even our profiles, right? Like I get marketed all the time to, hey, Karina, heard you're doing something, something at peak or terminus, right? I don't work there, but because I have that on my profile, it's just, it's a, a faulty algorithm. I would be super specific when you're building your audience to show not only the LinkedIn user profile that you're wanting to target, the job title, the company website URL, and the company LinkedIn URL, just as a little tip there. But yeah, definitely um, more, more things to come are in the link that Terry did. Thank you, Terry. So during the second phase is actually where we started to use technology to push our programs at scale. And I, and I really, I, I like to harp on this. I'm sure you guys have probably heard this enough from me and other people as well. It, you do not need technology to do ABM. You need to know who your target audience is. And it's okay if you find out and refine who that is throughout the process. And you need to be really mindful about the kind of content you're pushing to them to make sure it resonates. But you do not need technology. Technology should just be there to help you scale. I do know a lot of peers that have been told to launch ABM and they kind of go full forward with the vendor selection. There are very talented vendors out there and thought leaders, but they are not there to build a strategy for you. They're simply there to take what you have given them and make sure it works within their solution to scale it. So what really helped us to scale was a bit of display advertising for kind of top of the funnel, make sure we're all doing like an always on air campaign. And then also the personalization effort, which you'll see more on this one-to-one -one example. The personalized effort that we did with our web personalization was a lot around embedded web personalization. So changing out the text on certain landing pages on our site, changing out the imagery of certain landing pages on our site. So like I shared earlier, by customizing like an ebook as an example, same thing, but for the website. There are cheaper options out there. Um, Personize, P-E-R-S-O-N-Y-Z-E -E is a really good one. I'll put that in later for you guys, just so I don't, yep, thanks Terry, perfect. That is a really cheap, and when I say cheap, I mean like 200 bucks a month to try to see if web personalization can work for you. And they're very much a service element as well, so they'll do all this setup for you. They'll make sure it's connected to your Google Analytics and run the results for you. But yeah, that's really how we decided to scale. And then what we also did was, now that we had technology involved, we were able to really collab or um, get all of our data around how our campaigns are performing across multiple channels and make sense of it in a way that really helped us to scale really from a tiering perspective. So how do we know when to move somebody into that later stage, middle of the funnel or bottom of the funnel program? That I would say is the biggest differentiator with technology is just the ability to help you take that manual work out and just set up rules and tactics throughout all your marketing um, automation solutions to make sure you're firing off the right experience for the right person at the right time. Leela said, did you tell us big picture about the number of people you have working with you on the ABM programs and your overall budget? Yeah, no, I did not. And that's a really good point. Um, it was really just me initially. Um, I was brought on to launch this first and scale the team second. 
So uh, it definitely was a lot of work um, and I needed a lot of support, I would say from the front house of sales, the BDRs and SDRs to make sure this got put in action. But probably a quarter in after some of these programs and tactics proving results, um, I was able to hire and we were able to do that much more at scale. Um, so depending on, depending on your budget and size of team um, and what your goals are, I would say one to two is definitely realistic. Again, this shouldn't be like a, this should be something that you take and iterate over time. So there is kind of a blanket air cover strategy that you're doing, maybe to a certain industry or vertical set. But when those accounts are showing you intent and interest, that's really where the one-to-one -one combat comes in. Great question. This is another slide too that I built as a way to, again, kind of make sure that the entire company really was aligned with what we were doing. So on the far left, you can see here that I'm trying to showcase that there's a lot that goes into building this framework. So it's like, you know, go to market framework, um, templates, our technology strategy. I, I'm in SaaS predominantly. So a demo environment is also pretty crucial for me. And then I, you can see at the bottom, I have bullet points on who, what teams are involved. So I would definitely say that if ABM is not a top down bottom belief, it's going to be difficult because you do need other departments to be involved. And I think that those are namely sales, client success, product, I think is a really big one too. And then of course, you know, other areas of marketing. And then you can see here too, I show the, the marketing technology that's involved. Um, these are a couple of examples here. I'm happy to take a dive into any of those that you guys might like. And then partner enablement. Um, and that was again, like a pretty big one, not just for initial launch with account selection, but you know, it's with some of these bigger companies like Microsoft, who doesn't know Microsoft, but that's kind of the problem for salespeople at Microsoft is they don't have that marketing engine to support them, that they're not aligned as much to the thousands of reps that they have, right? I'm little old shop here saying, hey, here's what I've got going on. I've got all these cool events and collateral that's going to really help you exceed your quota. That literally was the game changer is coming to them with stuff that they can use and data that made sense for them. Um, so I would say that partner enablement is pretty crucial. And then I think it's done with that tea. Yes, uh, I, yes, <laughs> I definitely agree. IT is crucial. And then, yeah, on the right too, um, these are just examples, right? I mean, there could be one to many tactics that fall into one-to-one -one or vice versa. But this to me was a helpful way to, especially with the BDRs and AEs align with, hey, we're only gonna do this high level offering if this account is really actively engaged and showing us that they're in market. So I'm not gonna push a one-to-one personalized event experience for somebody that's potentially never heard of us or somebody that, I don't know, closed loss a deal with us just three months ago, just as an example. All right, Christina asked a question. How many accounts do you put into one to many versus one to few versus one to one? How do you make that decision? It's totally dependent on what I think works for you. I think you need to be mindful of how much can you or your team realistically execute. So what that's looked like for me is one to many will be kind of my always on air cover of maybe 2000 accounts. And then my one to few, that's gonna be maybe a hundred. And my one-to-one, -one, this is the, and I didn't mention this already, but the one-to-one, -one, I really just now exclusively focus mostly on deal acceleration. So these are accounts that are already in pipeline. 
So that depends on your organization. Um, if you're a very transactional organization, that could be a bit much. But if you're a um, longer sales cycle, you know, six months or more, this could be totally doable. You might have maybe 30 in the one-to-one -one, as an example, but totally dependent and probably it's going to take some trial and error. I don't think that there's any perfect tiering solution out there still. I think it's just super dependent on uh, your environment. Can you share any tactics that you're doing for deal acceleration? Yeah, um, the one-to-one -one virtual experience is not that inventive anymore, but still seems to really be working. We, we pitch it really as a way for us to network with the broader buying committee. So you guys all hear too about how the buying committee has tripled in size. We like to partner those different buying committees with a current client. So we'll, we'll have somebody from IT, we'll have somebody from BI, or we'll have somebody from, you know, the, the chief intelligence officer or the chief data officer. So we'll have kind of all buyers in this virtual event experience. And we'll do things like champagne tasting. And then we'll also give the opportunity for them to have that counterpart networking experience with a client that has a similar landscape. And we found just a lot of success from that. We try and, again, of course, we're there to push a particular product, but we really give do it so much of a give in the offering itself that it ends up being much more of a get. And then also the one-to-one -one, um, like personalized content hubs. You can do that with personalized. You can do that just with hard coding your own site. You can do that with things like Path Factory or Uberflip. Those are more expensive, but those are, you know, just basically a landing page where all of their resources, um, the buying committee can access at any time. And then I have air cover on that's always reminding the account that this exists. So whether they're browsing the web, just having that on that they can go back here because um, buying committees can be quite large and not all know that that's available to them. My experience for very large enterprise with long sales cycles and deal sizes less than 2 million one-to-one -one ABM was five accounts per marketer. Cool. Okay. That's awesome. That's great feedback. That's from Chris Davis. If anybody wants to deal go into that further. How receptive was sales to ABM initially? Any thoughts, tips on how to get buyer from sales and get them on board? Yes. Let me see. What is my next slide? Oh yeah. Okay. This kind of tells you this, this went into what I just talked about with pipeline acceleration. So I'll leave that up for a little bit, but I'll answer this question. Yeah. So I would say that I've walked into environments where marketing in general wasn't received very well by sales. And largely it's pretty much always due to a lack of timely information that gets distributed to sales and a lack of quality of leads or accounts that get passed over. And that was definitely some of my recent experience as well. I worked very hard to establish one-to-one um, connections with these AEs, but I also, once that was kind of formed, I asked a select few to be part of a pilot program with me where we actually launched ABM together. Um, so that consisted of maybe like two AEs, I think it was one BDR at the time, myself, and actually our RevOps person as well. Super critical component um, is the marketing operations behind all of this. I think a lot of people tend to just kind of launch with tactics and programs and don't think about the broader picture of how is this going to fit into what we're already doing from a measurement perspective? How are you going to show those results? So um, I made sure to have an operations person kind of tied into that. But what we did was we would meet bi-weekly initially, and it was, pure, it was a working meeting 
what's working for you. Does it make sense when I distribute this information to you? Do you like the way your dashboards look? And we just constantly iterated until we were at a really good place to where we felt comfortable to broaden it to the rest of the team. And what that ends up doing for you is it ends up being somebody that isn't just you, isn't just the marketer pushing that we should do this. You now have an advocate in different departments that are also saying, hey, I, I get it. Like Karina took the time to explain this and I got to see the results and, oh, I totally thought this was BS. And, and now I got some really cool opportunities out of it. So I would definitely recommend that. And always just remember that if you're really, we should be speaking the, the language of revenue. And I really fought hard to make sure that whatever the ABM program goal was really aligned with, what, with whatever my AEs or sales department goals were. That is going to ensure that you're getting alignment and buy-in. Did a company like GE or any other ever get upset that you use their logo on their site? Really great question, Chris. They did not, but we were mindful to have um, these conversations with reps before we did things like that. I would say GE is a pretty big, crazy example, but we did we did get away with it with GE. That's not that's that's really what the landing page looks like. But no, you should be careful. And I think that there's ways to get around it. Again, like maybe not using their logo, but using GE stock imagery to showcase that, you know, maybe a little bit of their fonts or color schemes, something to where it's not, you're not trying to be them, right? You're just trying to give them the instant connection of, ooh, that looks familiar, right? So that's all I try to do here. And that's an extreme example, but it's something you need to be careful with. Yes, Travis, I totally agree. Um, do not use logos in advertising because you don't know who's gonna see that. And that could create a very negative experience. We do that too, Karina, using their colors and fonts, images. Exactly. Yes, that's great, Leela. All right. So um, these are just some success metrics that were, you know, impactful for me. We were able to increase uh, our net new business pipeline year over year by 96%. And it's a direct correlation with the ABM programs. We are also were getting people to just spend more time on our site. So that's like a traditional demand gen metric, but this was all due to ABM pushing certain people to specific pages at a very specific point in time in their journey. Um, and we found that we were just getting 11% um, increase in conversions on our high value pages, which really were our demo request pages um, and our product pages. And then the chatbot, um, and I'm always happy to chat about that as well. We actually found huge success from one of our chatbot playbooks that was directly on our demo page. So you, you, you would think that that's an, if they went to the demo page, they would just fill out the form. Um, but we decided to test what it would be like to also have the chatbot that is designed to get a demo request out of you. And we, we found a 41% increase in um, demos that would probably already would have been lost otherwise is our hypothesis, right? So they decided purposely to not fill out the form, but they did decide to fill out the chatbot to get that same demo request. And those demo request bots are very conversational in nature. It's not just getting their information. We try and limit like things like title, job, um, really just focus on the basis of email and instead ask questions that would come up in a disco or a discovery call, right? What are your pain points? What are you struggling with? It helps speed up the process for everybody. And I think it shows the prospective client that we're really client centric. We really care about, are we a right fit? Are we solving the right challenge for you? Yes, Leela, I definitely, I can definitely chat about that. This is just some stats um, to show that, the, that this is really the trend. 
you guys all know, I mean, we're in year two of you know the pandemic. Everything has become much more digital. It doesn't matter if you're a millennial or not, but I did put those stats up there. But audiences of you know multiple generations are changing the way they buy. They are doing it through things that make it easier for them too. Our lives have also gotten more complex and intertwined. Um, so from what you're advertising to them to what you're you know pushing to them, we just need to be mindful to make it clear, simple, um, and a lot of the times chatbots can do that. Um, they also just crave more of a B2C experience. I think I talked to a lot of marketers that will maybe change positions and go with a, you know, maybe a finance or um, legal, so something that's a little bit more conservative in nature, traditionally vertical. But I try and remind them that they're still, they're still people. They still just want to enjoy who they're talking to. And in my past experience, it's not, it's not the gong audience, right? It was the IT individuals. And I was somebody that they wanted to talk to. I, you know, made it, I made the experience where they wanted to have fun with our programs. I didn't make it so stuffy. Did it change the type of content I offered? A little bit, but it was still, it was still important, right? You can still do that by providing a fun and unique experience that's more, you know, emulates more of a B2C. And then personalization, again, that's a really big component of ABM, as you guys all talked about earlier. So just this, this is another stat here to show you that it, there is data that shows that this works, that these tactics work. All right. So yeah, I'll just, I'll leave this up here. Really, I, I've kind of said a lot of these throughout, but, you know, let your strategy inform your technology selection, not the reverse. Everybody that's selling something right now, they're selling, they're trying to sell you something. Um, <laughs> everybody's saying that this, that this way of doing marketing is done and this is the new way. It's because they have something to gain. So just keep your blinders on. Um, I was pitched a lot. I'm still pitched a lot. And I try and make my own decision. What makes most sense for my clients and what makes most sense for my business? Um, so always just remember that, you know, think one thing that works for somebody may not work for somebody else, but let your strategy inform that, uh, not the reverse. The technology really should just be taking out the guesswork, right, of what content your visitors are consuming. So if we have all this data on who our ICP is, industry vertical, pain point, persona challenges, do use technology to push that and be, you know, center front. Um, websites are still a mess across a lot of organizations, and it's not very clear how to navigate them and get to what you're looking for. So use what you know um, and let technology push that to your prospective customers and clients so that they can easily interact and consume that. They won't forget how easy that was, and they'll come back to you for their decisions. Um, of course, make data-informed decisions, iterate and adjust as you go. These programs, sadly, are not set it and forget it. It's not a Google ad you can just pop up and just, you know, makes little tweaks here and there every now and again, every year. <laughs> they require being thoughtful and mindful. Who we thought our ICP was when we started these programs was not our ICP at all, purely because of timing, right? We went hard after some healthcare organizations that did not have the bandwidth and capacity to think about what we were trying to sell to them. So always just be mindful to be um, sending the right content at the right time to the right uh, persona. And over-communicate, this is a really good segue. So I had another question too um, from Christian. I'm not sure if he's on the line or not, but he, he asked, you know, what are some important things you can do to keep ABM top of mind cross-functionally and for all internal stakeholders? 
and who can make the biggest impact in supporting the ABM framework and moving it forward. I ch chatted with you guys a little bit about that pilot program. I think that that's super crucial, especially when you're just starting out. But secondly, over communicate, you know, marketers, I, I forget who coined this term, but it's, it's, it's a marketing thought leader. He called, he called marketers chief reminding officers. That's really what we are. So whether it's a Slack notification, whether you just pick up the phone real quickly, whether it's an email, um, never assume that the information that you maybe spent an hour presenting actually resonated at all. You know, we're all doing multiple jobs and tasks in our personal life and professional life. So just over communicate. I've yet to come across somebody that's been annoyed by me making sure that they know that their prospect was on the site or that they consumed this collateral or that they just changed jobs on LinkedIn. And again, over communicate the successes as well early on. Um, it shows, it shows, and, and, and the failures, quite honestly, um, I made, I make all my dashboards and reporting available to anybody across the department because I want them to see that I do care about our goal and what we're striving against. And I want them to feel comfortable seeing that I'm comfortable sharing my failures. So hopefully if they didn't understand the white paper that I told them to send out or the email invitation that I told them to send for an event, that they understand that that's okay. Um, so I definitely, I do that as well. I think some other ways are like internal newsletters, the what, the why, the for who, and the when. If you bucket out your information for sales leaders like that, you're golden. They just need it clean, quick, and simple. You have to remember that they're only focused on what's about to close. So it can be hard to communicate some of these things. So I, I do um, like a weekly newsletter of sorts where I'm doing just that. It also helps them kind of be forward thinking, right? If I have an event next month, I'm letting them know at least a month ahead of time so that they can be thinking if they're talking to somebody um, maybe a week later that this is upcoming. And then the SLAs I think are pretty important too. You know, when, when we build those out, our CRO or VP of sales or VP of client success, we made sure they were all bought into what we were saying. Um, and then we also then made sure that we presented it jointly to the different um, members that are going to be the executors, the CS, the AEs, the BDRs. Okay. Would you, so from Paul, would you bring in a consulting company to assist in the early days if you had the budget? <laughs> you know, it would have been a lot easier from a bandwidth perspective. I don't know how good that is actually for your, for the marketer. And I'll, I'll, I'll be, I guess, a little bit, because um, I know we've got consultants in peak. For me, I was stressed out. I was busy. I was working crazy hours. But I, I got to test. I got to figure out. And I got to formulate and make my own decisions rather than being positioned and pigeonholed to think a certain way. So for my personal experience, it was harder. But I think that I gained a lot more from it for me personally, but it certainly can be helpful. I will say though, challenge these people. I mean, I was just on a call yesterday where I felt like the vendor hadn't been challenged enough. I shouldn't necessarily be coming to them saying, have you thought of these tactics um, to increase my uh, visibility? So just, if you're gonna do that, challenge them. What's up, Paul? That was funny. What's up, Paul? Uh, Karina, uh, just to clarify, um, we all know that, um, and you specifically know that uh, ABMs, it's you know, it's a it's a long game. It's not a short game, and people don't, especially uh, small organisations, don't get the opportunity to play that long game. Uh, they'll cancel it even before it can prove any success. That's why I asked the question, wouldn't it? 
Uh, but yeah. then you're going to have to convince the decision makers to actually pay the money for the consultant. So it's like your other, it's a yeah, chicken yeah. or egg, right? Yeah, no, and, and that's a really great point. Whereas when you just have the money for program span and technology, it, it, it will all go back to you. At the very least, maybe you could give the comparison of, okay, decision makers internally, let's, let's actually have these meetings together so you can see how much work is actually going to go into building these programs and the thought and the kind of questions I'm getting asked. So when I come to you for more money or, or more time that you understand that it's not just Karina being Karina, like these, these things just take a lot of work and a lot of time and money. Yeah, Leela. Yeah, just um, I, I I wanted to take a few minutes to talk about how do you sell internally, like not only presenting to your metrics because, so I have a, a large I have actually a CEO that's a marketing you know he he appreciates the the value of marketing so I so that's good so I got a good starting point, but you know the 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 point about reporting your metrics sometimes I'm like I go into the room we have these leadership meetings and I'm like. Ta-da! And I'm so excited. We've just doubled our SQLs for one month, you know, and the, you know, because of some very specific things we did. And yeah. it's like crickets. And I just, you know, I'm curious how other people try. I mean, there's no magic bullet or anything, but or silver bullet, but there's I'm just wondering if 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 there's techniques or things that people do to try to create that energy within your leadership groups about your um, the, the the wins that you can show you know i think it's because most or a lot of leaders that i've interacted with at the c level it, sql maybe you said it a thousand times they still don't get it we as marketers overcomplicate our own terminology even with each other and when you lead like that I think it because you're setting the bar up of like, okay, we're two different people. We're not going to talk the same way. So I'm tuning out. Great. She had great success. Um, it doesn't resonate with me. So I've definitely had other CEOs who even personally would say that they are, you know, marketers in their own right, but they're not in it in the trenches. And so I learned to communicate results to him by being very plain speak. This is what we, th this is what we did, like high level, you don't want to go for too long or too in the weeds. This is the result it drove. I don't know if that's really the, a one size, like, you know, approach here, but I have just found that no matter the experience level or the audience level, if it's not something that they fully understand, they just tune out. And unfortunately that means that your spotlight gets dimmed as a result. Um, so I would just be very plain speak about it and always be available to, I think, offline or one-on-one -on -one to say, hey, did that resonate? Um, or, or what could I have done differently? So I, I don't know if that's super helpful, but I've certainly been in that boat. And um, <laughs> it, it took my own learnings, not them being forthcoming about it, to understand that, ah, this is probably the disconnect. Okay, awesome. Terry asked me, how often should ICPs be revisited? Again, kind of dependent on your buying cycle um, and I think just the market you're in. I personally revisit them quarterly and it's not always that people come out. They may just come out of certain kind of program offerings. Um, so maybe I scale it back a bit. Um, I do like to think that largely it's probably important to always be on. So it's probably less of 
fully removing, although of course, if you know that they went to your competitor and they're not of interest, don't waste a single dollar on them. <laughs> but yeah, um, I would say for me, it's been quarterly, but it's kind of dependent, I think, on your sales cycle and your business. Christina asked, one challenge we have with ABM is passing hot accounts to sales, but not knowing who the engaged contacts are. How are we overcome that? Oh, I know. And that's kind of the struggle that ABM technology has is it's still somewhat of a black box. You know, they're able to offer you account data, but not person data typically. And I've pushed some hard actually on some of these vendors um, with the perception of, well, if they fill out our form, everything's connected. They've now become a known visitor. How are you going to overcome that? I've been told by product, um, the product team that it's possible, but it's just, it's not of utmost importance. Um, but anyways, I would say that if you know these are your target accounts, you know that they're market fit, the sales team is bought into this list, somebody on the team needs to do the work to identify the personas ahead of time as much as possible so that on the chance they do end up taking that formful action, you've already got them in their system and potentially will have you know, um, a very quick understanding. But it's it's gotta be a conversation and they've gotta understand that the purpose here is to market to an account. And a lot of the technology that's out there is gonna just kind of surface account level insights. It's just not gonna be that. And that's a lot of what ABM has to overcome in general is that it's, it's not the traditional demand gen way of doing things. It's not really lead based. Not to say that those aren't important, but it's just different. And so you're just gonna have to overcome that a lot. I've just had to have repeat conversations, say things differently, present things differently, but always lead it with, but you know what, huh? This person at LinkedIn, like, looks like they just started job here. They like, look, look like they would be a good fit. Let's maybe have our BDR kind of prospect into them. Always kind of end those things with a give. And I think that they'll feel a little bit less jaded that they didn't get exactly what they wanted initially. Paul, what is your view on ABM and community drive adoption and success? Oh, I mean, I think community is everything. The more you can engage with your prospective clients or future customers where they're already living, the better. And I think community can mean different things for different companies. Personally, one of the things I'm trying to get a little bit more involved in here at Gong is we have an amazing community and we're working to kind of open that up to people that aren't yet clients, not to every aspect of a community channel, but to some, just so that they can see that the, like they're represented there or, ah, those are questions I had to look at that get answered by somebody that looks like me. And they are fully um, into that. So that'll be something that's really cool. And if, if you have something like that, um, I would encourage that. All right, I'm going to go to Pablo. I haven't, I haven't heard from him yet. Can you give a little insight into how important online events are to your EVM strategy and how you execute on them? Yeah, well, um, they're kind of everything. Um, they're the best way for my team to interact with our future customers. It's um, still really challenging to do in person. So some of these online events um, are really crucial for us. I really try to err it on the side of making it as inclusive as possible. So just like what we're doing here, ideally everybody, you know, has their video on, they're chatting live. You want to make it really like a networking experience versus slideware to death, demo to death experience. Um, so that's how we view our events. And by nature, those typically fall more into the one to few or one to one 
because I want everybody to be, you have a chance to participate in that meaningful way. So it's not really about appealing to the masses a lot of the time, or most of the time, I should say. It's more so about appealing to a select few. And how do I execute on them? I um, will throw a vendor out there um, who really helped with the experience component, Purple Quark. She's excellent. She's grown so much in the past year. She now has a team supporting her, but she was a one-woman show for a while. She's a former marketer, so she understands what goes into promoting, executing, and following up and closing out an event, and she takes that on for you. So it's been a huge help for me, particularly when I was, was just that team of one. But yeah, it, and I definitely try and always have it be a coordinated effort with sales. So again, going overboard in communication, I will actually put calendar holds on their calendars for when to send the invite, what to include in the invite, when to follow up, here's the report. So overkill, babysitting, but works. <laughs> um, and again, nobody was uh, frustrated uh, by that. They, it was, they found it to be really helpful. Uh, so I hope that answers. Jen, hey Jen, she said, ICP should be revised yearly or even quarterly. It varies based on your org. Yep, a thousand percent. Definitely after any merger or acquisition or before new product launch. Yeah, that's really great feedback. Thanks, Tyler. Tyler shared a case study that I did with Terminus. Um, and it's, kind of, it's all around a lot of these results. What is your main primary strategy to get buy-in? I that question that I asked at the top of this presentation, how do you define ABM? I asked of my CEO when I joined the company. I wanted to understand from the top, from the top, how he thought of it so that I could then best work throughout other department leaders to filter down what this was going to be. So I really, you know, it sucks and it's going to be so much harder at bigger organizations, but with most things, you have to have that uh, top level engagement and buy-in. And in the absence of that, it's just going to be much harder of an uphill battle. So my main strategy is engage with C-level on something like this early. Um, that'll really help clarify for you the what your wins are going to be, I think. Okay. Does anybody have any other questions? I think I got to all. I think that pretty well wraps it up. You did a great job. This was fantastic. And um, so thanks to everyone for joining us today. Thanks to Karina for such an awesome session. And we want to make sure that everyone uh, walks away feeling that they got 1% better uh, by attending this particular event. And oh, one more thing. We have our next event, including how to balance budget versus results for our ECMOs and the General Peak Session, The Eight Paradoxes of Great Leadership by Tim Elmore. And we do have a special treat for our Peak members coming up next week. So stay tuned. And in the meantime, once again, thanks to Karina. Thanks for everyone for joining us and have a great weekend. Bye guys, have a great weekend. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the Flip My Funnel podcast. To make sure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you have an iPhone, we'd love for you to open the Apple Podcasts app and leave a review. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.